Hello, and my name is Ryan Broderick. And up until we started recording this today, I was watching an hour and a half long YouTube video summarizing the plotline of the Marvel Comics crossover event from the 90s onslaught. Oh, I am uh, Luke Bailey, and I was not watching that. I was, I was, I was, I was actually watching an old episode of The Office. Oh, okay. Well, similar, actually, more similar than I thought you were going to say. So that's that's interesting. Are you an Office fan? I didn't know this about you. No, I mean, uh, 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 I, I, I cook dinner, and then we watch some TV. And it's The Office is what you're watching. Yeah. Huh. Well, like you can't like I, 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 I only finished dinner like 20 minutes. Well. 20 minutes before we started recording this, so I had 20 minutes to eat. And there's not many shows that are easy to agree on and, and, and watch in 20 minutes. Are you a Friends like a nice, fan? I mean, yeah, that's in the, that's in the, in the rotation as well. Interesting. Like, you know, just, you need, you need some shows to watch for 21 minutes at a time. That's true. I agree with that. All right, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Content Minds. This week, we're talking about the very bad week in the very bad month that Facebook is having right now. But before yeah. we get there, we have a bit of news to announce, which is very exciting. Luke and I are going to be doing a live event in London. Yeah, we are. It's called Bad Posters Club, which was Luke's idea for, uh, for a name, which is very, very good. Very, very inspired. Uh, in terms of what it is, <laughs> there will be information on our Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash the content minds. But we are bringing together some of the best minds of the British Internet to basically answer the question of what is the Internet doing to our brains, which obviously is nothing good. It's not doing anything good to our brains. Uh, the event is going to be involving the hosts of 10,000 Posts a podcast that I absolutely adore. That's Hussein Kasvani and Phoebe Roy. We also have Serena Bergman, the digital culture editor for Insider UK. We have Alex Hearn, the technology editor for The Guardian. Saima Ferdos, a stand-up and writer in the UK. Annie Kelly, the UK correspondent for another excellent podcast, QAnon Anonymous. Molly Goodfellow, a freelance comedy writer and journalist. And Tom Phillips, an author. And I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Uh, and if you want to see that... Uh, be in London on November 10th in King's Cross uh, in the basement of a pub called Star of Kings. That's 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 what's happening. It's very exciting. Uh, oh, and it's also free, which is even even better. So oh, I didn't really agree to that, but cool. I'm into it. Yeah. Well, there's a funny thing where I can't definitely accept any money for doing this because I don't have a work visa in the UK anymore. So that's an important <laughs> piece. Okay. So this is this is more of a uh, uh, an immigration issue than anything else. I will be up in the basement of this pub, and then you will spontaneously ask me to come up on stage, at which point I will then be like, wow, what's going on? I never expected this would happen. Don't give me any financial compensation for doing this, and then, then the show will begin. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Sounds good. Please come out and, and see that. Uh, the room fits 80 people, so if if all 10 of our of the presenters bring five people – and then we have 30 random people from the internet show up. We'll be able to fill out this room. So hopefully... Or just people are walking by who we just sort of stand by and just say like, hey, if you go and hear this free beer, there won't be free beer, 
but they might stick around after they find out there's not free beer. I'll I'll buy three people a beer each if they come. Okay. But once again, I am not I am not exchanging any sort of financial compensation for work being done in the UK, a country I no longer have a work visa for. <laughs> I want to be very clear that I am giving a beer as I would anyone. Okay. Yes. Um, good. Great. So, Luke, how was the internet this week? Um, the internet has been um, high speed, a full speed, full speed. The internet has been full speed. It feels like there an awful lot has happened, uh, but it's happened at the correct speeds. It's happened aggressively. Uh, everything's jumping around, but it's not like kind of that out of control thing. It is like going at full speed, but still just about in control. I mean, I think we'll talk more about this in the big segment this week, but it also to me feels like it's going too fast for the like the structure of the like. It, you know, like in those cartoons where like the car is going really, really fast, and then like, oh, and like in the Fast and the Furious, and like it's like the Dom Cuba scene where Dom Dominic Toretto he's riding in Cuba and his car starts to fall apart, but it's going faster than ever, and then it's like by the end of it, it's on fire. There's no windshield. That's what the internet feels like to me right now. No, I think it's before that. I think I think at this point it's just like at its limit. It hasn't started exploding yet. Stuff is on fire. It's it's going to be on fire soon. Interesting. Very interesting. How is the UK handling the uh the Tory conference? Uh pretty well, to be honest. Like it it was it was kind of un uneventful in many ways. I've only seen like four or five embarrassing moments, which is I think much smaller than than normal years. I mean it's helpful that obviously like all of the young people there are embarrassing, but young people at all <laughs> political conferences are embarrassing and, and they shouldn't go, and I don't understand why they still do. But leaving that aside, it, it's quite easy. It's much easier to be less embarrassing when your your leader, your prime minister, your party leader uh, doesn't actually have to do anything or say anything, and instead gives an extremely long speech in which they say an awful lot of things without actually giving any hard details on it on anything. So yeah, nothing's really happened. Interesting. Yeah, I guess. I guess it's that. So it's it's interesting. Like you know. You guys still have Boris Johnson. Like, we don't have Trump anymore. So, like, we're not back to normal. And, you know, we're probably worse off as a country than we've ever been in our history. But we no longer have, like, an insane man that, like, we have to just, like, deal with every day. But you guys still have your insane man. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's an order of magnitude difference. But on the other hand, we are also at the point where everyone is filling up uh, plastic bottles full of petrol, which you guys had earlier this summer, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I think we did have that. I think that did you, you, yeah. no, you, uh, you had carrier bags, didn't you? You, everyone had carrier bags of petrol. Well, oh, no, no. I, I remember, I know what you're talking about. Yes, there was the viral image of <laughs> the person at a gas station trying to fill up, uh, a trash bag full of gasoline, which I think was, yes. I honestly have no idea when anything happens anymore. In fact, like someone, uh, on Twitter mentioned like a thing that we said on our, on this show. And I think it was in the last several weeks that we said it, but like I have no memory of that. And so I think the the, the trash bag full of gas was sometime in the last two years, but I have no idea when that was. I'm pretty sure it's earlier this year, but no, we've since had our gas shortage, our petrol shortage, uh, and as a result, yeah, lots of people are going to going to petrol stations, sitting in enormous long queues because they're British. They're having fights on the forecourt, and there's a lot of like embarrassing running around and falling over car bonnets as they yell about who's been in the queue longer. Um, and then they try and fill up, you know, two little bottles of, of Evian that they've emptied out with, with petrol. 
Let me translate that. So it's people running around the hood of their car and getting in line to fill up water bottles full of gasoline. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I want to talk about uh, Pitchfork redoing their scores. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because I only half follow this and like don't actually know what's going on. Yeah, so I did not know this was a thing that they did, but it is a thing that they do where they basically go back over the last 20 years and say, here are 19 album review scores that we'd change if we could. Right. Which okay. feels, which feels like they're retrospectively just saying, like, actually we were right, even though in the moment we were wrong. I see. Okay. And why are people mad about it this time? Because that's what I couldn't figure out. Cause I knew they updated scores. I just couldn't figure out, like, why everyone was pissed about it this time. Um, I think that there was, there was a few things in there that really jumped out as a, all right, what the fuck? Uh, because also it kind of brought up the worst elements of Pitchfork. So like one of the things that they highlighted was uh they gave Lana Del Rey a 5.5 originally. Uh-huh. Uh her first album Born to Die, which is like for a, a, an album that has done as much for the culture as that album is a hell of a score. Yeah, that's not that that has not aged well. Like I don't like Lana Del Rey and I especially don't like Lana Del Rey fans. But that album needs to be at least over an 8, in my opinion, in terms of legacy or impact, for sure. Well, they only moved it up to 7.8, which also is one of my favorite things about Pitchfork. The the decimals give it such like a sense of authority that it absolutely does not have. And I know that they don't think that that's what they're doing, and I'm sure that they all in, internally have like a, a, a complicated rationalization in their heads. But what they're absolutely doing is just like giving an unnecessary amount of precision to these things as a way of making people talk about them. Yes. I also think that like the entire pitchfork model of critically talking about pop music as if it were like not pop music has eroded culture. I think the entire the entire idea like I have nothing wrong with taking pop music seriously, but I also think the entire like pitchfork way that they do it is been like a net negative for the world. Like none the best bands that I've ever seen live no, that's not true. The best bands are never the ones who I have the most, the strongest emotional connection to or the ones who are most fun to watch live. What do you mean? What I mean is that, you know, uh, I can listen to an album and be like, yeah, wow, that's a brilliant album and go to the gig and I have a lousy time because it's like, it's too much. It's too, oh yeah. Also it's too, like yeah. an album and a live show are like totally different things Like you can make like, well, I mean, what is the, the Beatles? They didn't, they stopped playing live shows pretty much right away and then they just like never played live again like most of their music is even i mean obviously like i'm too punk to like the beatles personally but like none of their music could be played like the white album can't be played live and that album has every type of guitar music that could ever be possible in one album yeah that's true and and, and it is it is it is yeah and as a result like a good band does not mean a good album or no sorry a good band a, a good band that makes a good album does not mean a band that that has any uh, emotional heft to it which is what music is about and this actually this also oh, this pitchfork list is so it's so bad so they give daft punk's 2001 album discovery they move that from a 6.4 to a 10 to demonstrate that actually pitchfork re pitchfork recognizes that their early put daft punk's earlier work was really good oh. and then gives random access memories from 2013 moves that from an 8.8 .8 to a 6.8 to demonstrate that Daft Punk, which they did not know were good initially, really dropped off. <laughs> well, that's interesting to me. So, I mean, I've, 
I agree with so so far. Like I kind of agree with everything that they've done. I don't. Okay. What All are right. people pissed about? Like, what is the thing that's making people? They're angry? pissed that they did it. They're pissed that they, they did it. But they always do this. They do this like every couple of years. That's what I'm confused about. I've been confused about this all week, and I'm like, I don't want to wade into this because I have so much other like discourse to sift through. I couldn't figure out like why are people pissed now? Because it, I think that it is a it just kind of strips naked the pitchfork thing that they are not actually ever attempting to score the music. They are attempting to capture a. a I almost I don't I don't know the way I put it like a, a perception of the music like they're attempting to put a number on something ineffable and then uh, going back and being like yeah it turns out it was ineffable we 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 shouldn't have done this but I thought we knew this is what I, I this is what I'm so confused about I thought we I knew think, this I, we we do we do but they have embarrassed themselves doing it and I think that they are the sort of people who it's fun to mock when they embarrass themselves what is the most controversial change that they've done um. I don't know. I mean, none of them are, this is the thing, none of them are truly controversial. It is just kind of, it's, it's, it's settling themselves into a mainstream where, whereas initially they may have said, no, no, we're going to stand by these iconoclastic scores. They're like, no, no, the iconoclasm was wrong. Hold on. The mainstream perception of this was correct. I'm pulling this up. I'm pulling this up. I need to, I need to like look through this myself. Okay. Okay. I'm already angry because they scored Rilo Kylie's Takeoffs and landings of 4.0 originally, which is no, abs- no, they've changed it, so it's it's okay. You can't be mad now. No, I know, but the fact that they even did that, I didn't even know they did that because it was so long ago. That's absolutely fucking bullshit. Exactly, and 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 you're slightly mad at both the fact that they did the original score that was bad, and then that they changed it. Yes, I agree. I'm. Oh, this is why everyone's been talking about Interpol all week. Okay, for the okay, so this is such a random collection of albums too, like. I think it's very funny to demote Grimes' album. That's fantastic. Yes, that's uh, hilarious. That is very funny. I think they're right about Big Boy's Sir Lucius Leftfoot, the son of Chico Dusty. I don't think it was a very good album. I couldn't gun to my head name anything off of that album that I really liked. I think they are insane, absolutely insane, to drop Interpol from a 9.5 to a 7.0. That's nonsense. Um, but I guess like, I just, like, I feel like I'm, maybe this is me getting old or what, but I feel like more and more now stuff happens and I'm like, I don't know why we're mad about it this time because we, this happens all the time. I mean, yeah, this is part of it. The, 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 the internet cycle is tightening and the discourse cycle is tightening, meaning you're kind of like, ah, I remember getting mad about this last time. I don't have the energy this time. Yeah. Like I remember being mad about this. I'll put the same tweet up I did last time. Uh, speaking of getting mad about stuff for no reason, uh, have you heard about Couch Guy? Yeah, we should talk about Couch Guy. So the tweet uh, from a listener, uh, his name is Ian. Thank you, Ian, for tweeting at us. Um, he mentioned us in a tweet about Couch Guy, which got me like thinking about Couch Guy. Um, and our listener Ian wrote, "Listen to an episode of the Content Minds a while ago where they discussed the relentless compulsion for people to monetize or try to profit off of even brief social media virality. Case in point, the person at the center of the TikTok Couch Guy meme is now selling shirts. I do not remember." What episode we talked about that in, but I assume we did, uh, and I agree with us. We sound we sound correct. Yeah. I sound correct. Yes. Uh, and uh, the, so if if you don't know what we're talking about, Couch Guy is a, a TikTok. He's not. He actually wasn't even a TikTok user. He's the boyfriend of a TikTok user. She showed up to his college to surprise him. Uh, re- recorded it, posted it to TikTok. Thought it was a cute video. Based on the way the video looks, 
people thought that he was secretly cheating on her and wasn't happy to see her. They claimed that he was an abuser, started saying that there was red flags that she should watch out for about like his behavior. He's had to like go out on TikTok and be, make his own account now and be like, I'm not an abuser. Please stop saying that. And now he's selling T-shirts. So, you know, that's the whole life cycle of the Internet in 2021 as far as I'm concerned. I think the most – there's a really interesting part of this, which is the – way that people are always constantly willing to tell other people to tell strangers to break up their relationships. People love doing that. It's the same on Reddit. There's that Reddit. What's the subreddit? Yes. So I, every morning I do the same thing and I've been doing this for like six months. And I don't know why I started it and I don't know why I keep doing it. And it's actually becoming more and more of a problem. I open up, am I the asshole? And I just read like dozens of am I the asshole posts every morning. And over the last six months, all of them have devolved into you are an abuser or that person is an abuser and you need to break up. Like that is the that is basically the only thing that's being said in these subreddits to the point where they're not even usable anymore, really. Yeah, it is just the every the answer every time is break up. And it's like at certain point, like it's yeah, people can be dicks. Maybe you should work around that. Maybe you should figure out how to sustain your relationship beyond that. Obviously there are there are things in these circumstances where it's like, oh no, you need to leave this person. They will they will murder you. And there are many of them that are just like, mm, it seems like a dick, but you know, you should probably talk about the thing that you're mad about. So uh, internet culture writer Amelia Tate, she's really, really good. She's based in the UK. And she wrote a Refinery29 piece back in June titled, The Internet Said Dump Him So I Did. And it's interviews with people who actually took Reddit's advice. For the most part, they were all happy that they did it, but I still think it's weird. <laughs> I still think it's like weird that it keeps happening. I think that, I mean, the other half of it is always like people go to these sites to have, be be reassured of the thing they already want to do. Like, I don't think, I think if you're going to this, to Reddit to be like, I know I'm right, my friends are all wrong and they're saying I should do this, you are going to read the those list of comments and be like, yeah, it turns out I was right. And these six people out of 60 think that I'm right. Uh, whereas obviously the inverse where you're, where you're looking for kind of reassurance that you're doing the right thing by dumping someone, you're going to get that. But I do think that Equally, the volume of people who, for whom every single solution is break up is, is kind of wild. There's also a thing where like, if you've ever read through like all the comments on one of these posts, there are more nuanced solutions and advice at the bottom, but yep. Reddit has an upvote downvote ratio that algorithm that sort of powers all their engagement. And I do think that like all forms of algorithmic content kind of crave finality and, and like some kind of violence. Like they, they crave some kind of like, you know, big, cataclysm and i feel like the the reddit algorithm has just like decided that like breaking up from an abusive relationship is the de facto answer to all issues well the more what well, to be clear if you're in an abusive relationship you should try and break up i agree in a way that you can do that safely i agree in a relationship in which the abuse is limited to sometimes they leave their shoes in the wrong place that's a different situation yeah is, yeah if your girlfriend ate your leftover chicken She's probably she, she might be abusing you in other in other situations, but I think it is probably unlikely that her eating your leftover chicken is a is a red flag. Red flag emoji. Red flag emoji. Red flag emoji. Yeah. So um, couch guy is really weird. It's a it, it's also it feels very linked to me to the Gabby Petito disappearance and sort of like the conspiratorial like. He got really into it. Like, like the the entire thing was based on the fact that he was a talking to girls when she came in. Which fine, you're you're actually allowed to talk to people of of you're allowed to talk to people. That's that's allowed. Sounds like a red flag uh, that, to me. He he sort of he didn't stand up quick enough. Which again is like you can take as long as you like to stand up, and it was three seconds as opposed to like one and a half. 
and that he maybe or maybe didn't acquire, reacquire his phone from somewhere. And I'm slightly curious. So I, I saw a video break. I saw a video breakdown of this one because she posted. <laughs> She posted a response to this one, which is uh, he picks up his phone in a weird way that makes it look like he's hiding his phone like underneath him. Because I guess like the thought was that like she caught him texting other girls while also he was with two other girls that he might have been cheating on her with. Yes. No, no. He was he was texting the girls by writing in his his iPhone notes. Oh, that's, and, then, and then showing them. That's totally. To yeah, that's totally a normal, plausible situation for to yeah. happen. Yeah. Okay. Oh boy. I feel like TikTok, as it gets like bigger and big, like we need to sort of like do a big episode on TikTok in maybe a week or two because I feel like we are getting very close to like the world of TikTok as the biggest platform in the world. And like things are getting so weird so fast. And I just like don't, I I don't think I can keep up with all of it anymore. No, it's extremely fast. And the, the algorithm is so aggressive that it, yeah, it's doing, it's doing some fun stuff. The algorithm, Luke. The algorithm. It's the algorithm. Yeah, so I think the best place to start is probably going to be the Wall Street Journal stuff, which has been coming out for a little bit longer than a week now, I think. Um, but that has been, I mean, it's interesting. It is very interesting, the stuff that is in there. And I, I, from my personal perspective, the thing that I am most fascinated about it is that a lot of the stuff in there matches what they say publicly. What do you, Say more, what do you mean? Um, what I mean is that uh, when they talk about, for example... Uh, the idea where they're trying to improve, they're trying to basically maintain user engagement at a level that means that people continue to use the platform a lot, but don't get radicalized. Right. Like that is a, that is a line they have been trying to cross for, for a while. Uh, because they've always said that basically, um, the bottom 70% is zero engagement. The next 20% is really active engagement. And the last 10% is, is, uh, extremism. And they basically just want to cut the last 10% off and they're just trying to figure out where that line sits. Right. And the fact that they then say that in this and then say, hmm, we didn't really mean that. I'm kind of like, well, I think actually you guys have said this. They've drawn charts to say this is how we think of this. Um, which yeah, I, th- I think is, is interesting as a, as a leak. Like it, it absolutely stacks up with what they said publicly. Yeah. I mean, so when I was like really aggressively reporting on Facebook, they would, they would sort of try to downplay a lot of stuff, like almost everything <laughs> that you would bring to them. They would, they would spend a while trying to gaslight you into thinking that you were completely insane, uh, which is a really destabilizing thing to do all the time to people. Um, and what has been, I think, very validating about the up to – so it's, it's nine stories so far that have been published by the Wall Street Journal based on tens of thousands of internal documents from Facebook is that, at least for me, most of it has, has been very vindicating because I'm like, oh, like – and it's not like I was the only person noticing these things, but there's a lot of reporters every single day who are who are finding really bad stuff on the platform and then messaging a Facebook spokesperson and being like, what's the deal with this? And then they spend like hours harassing you and like trying to convince you that you're crazy. And what's crazy about it, the what's the most crazy about all of this is that a lot of those people used to work for the Obama administration. <laughs> I feel like that is a very yeah. under talked about. Uh, that's not fair. Some of them work. Some of them work for the Lib Dems in the UK. I'm sorry, you're right. 
I think it is just very wild to me that, you know, every millennial that was part of the Obama, like, political machine is now, you know, working as a professional gaslighter for the Facebook promotional department. It's it's really, it's really hard to, if you have never, like, had to deal with Facebook as a journalist and try and go back and forth with their PRs to get actual comments or actual like uh, responses to things it's very hard to explain because they are i mean they are next level in terms of how uh aggressive they are in terms of how i mean gaslighting is exact is is kind of the exact right word for it in which they will repeatedly say like the thing that you are seeing here the th- the thing that you have proved is just not the case right and you have to go back and forth and then you kind of like get off the phone and they're like well they made some good points and you read your notes again and you're like nope they didn't back again and it's it's very nice to finally see it just out and it's and like but what's also frustrating about this is that, like, how many t- how many times, how many moments of the Emperor's Got No Clothes On do we have to go through until everyone's like, yes, this is true. Like, the, the, that the, this platform has has incited riots and genocides and violence and 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 destabilized the earth and whatever else you want to you want to say it did. So one of the one of one of the, the Wall Street Journal articles, uh, it's titled uh, Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place. It got angrier instead. And I feel like it's probably the most damning. Well, it's. One of the two, I think, most damning leaks here. And it, and it sort of just outlines everything that we've kind of been talking about, which is that Facebook has known for many years that it makes you angrier and then you use it more. And so it, it, its main, its main feature is just pissing you off so you consume more advertising. Like that's, that's the whole game. That's the platform. There's no other version of it. Um, and then the other one that I found, I think even more damning was the one about, uh, Facebook kids. You know about this? Yeah. Yeah, the Facebook kids stuff is, yeah, it's kind of, it's very, <laughs> it's pretty disturbing. It's titled, Facebook's effort to attract preteens goes beyond Instagram kids document show. And one of the most like psychotic pieces of it was a presentation that has the question, I, I still, I still couldn't, I still, I, I, I can't get over how fucked up this is. So it, the, the presentation has a line that says, is there a way to leverage playdates to drive word of hand slash growth among kids? And when I first read it, I was like, what is word of hand? And then it clicked what word of hand means, which is like word <laughs> of mouth for handheld internet use. And it chilled me to my core, Luke. It chilled me to my core. It's insane. Hey, you've got, you've got to get, look, two billion is not is not enough. You have to have more than that. This is how you have like, to have more users. This is like how how like cigarette companies talked about children in the forties. <laughs> yeah, no, it's exactly the same. It is exactly the same. Like the the way they talk about so much of this stuff is the language of addiction, uh, and the stuff they got into about about teens. Uh, so teen girls say, and and this is this is also really interesting because we typically talk about the problems of Facebook as being one of radicalization. Uh, that's kind of like where we both go on it, uh, that it, that it, it drives people towards, yeah, towards radical beliefs, whether that's right wing, left wing, Islamist, or, or whatever it might be. Uh, what we don't talk about quite so much is the day to day damage that it does. Uh, and one of the, the, the most susceptible groups to that is, is always going to be teen girls. And what Facebook discovered with this study was basically that teens often feel addicted and know that what they're seeing is bad for their mental health, but feel unable to stop themselves, which, Right there is well, that's an addiction. That's 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 a drug addiction. That's an alcohol addiction. That's gambling addiction. That is the same thing. It's that they know it's bad for them. They don't like that they do it, and they do it anyway. That's actually a really good lead-in to this thing that I've been holding on to for a while, and I put it as sort of like a random link in a garbage day issue a while back. 
Um, but I've never been able to really go as deep into it as I wanted to. And it was a, it's actually a, um, it's a Tumblr discussion. Uh, and I wanted to read a little bit of it because I think, I think it's like a really interesting insight into the, what you're describing, this sort of like toxic, like mental health sphere for Instagram. So one user, uh, three Liza writes, I might be about to go hardcore, no retouching, no filter. I'm getting like radically alarmed about, about what real time video filtering and just basic digital retouching is doing to people's brains, not just kids either, but adults who were around before it was a thing. Another one, another user writes that TikTok has been applying a, a face shrinking filter, which is a beauty filter that's very common in like East Asian, um, uh, mobile apps. I, I actually did a video a couple of years ago where we tried like a bunch of beauty filters together and it was like really disturbing what they do to you. These are just like every day. Yeah, yeah, this is just like, like, like Chinese apps, a lot of them just have these beauty filters built in, sometimes by default. So you just like, the idea is that if you use this video, uh, this photo app, your face looks better and they don't even tell you why. And it's because they're, they're live time, like real time retouching you. Yeah, it's, it's, you look hotter on this app than on the other apps who use this app more. Exactly. And then, uh, the, the Tumblr user, Three Liza, describes it as a cognito hazard, which I really liked the term of. And then they, they capped it all off by writing, my compulsory retouching is causing body dysmorphia on an unprecedented scale and should be treated as a public health crisis post is raising a lot of questions already answered by the post. <laughs> and I think it's like one of those things where I read it and I obviously like, I don't feel good on Instagram. I'm a man in my thirties and I don't have muscles or a lot of money and I'm not very interesting. So I don't like using it, but I think that like, it is a thing that is left out often from the entire conversation about Facebook and it's like social damage. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, and it, it's something that we probably need to be more aware of in the, the, yeah, the, the extreme, the splashy stuff is, you know, people storming the capital. The less splashy stuff is the fact that people who use Instagram a lot simply cannot tell the difference between Instagram and reality in a really disturbing way. Yeah. And it's, and 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 for all of these issues that we're talking about with Facebook, like just assume that they're bad for countries like the U.S. and the U.K., but they are so much worse for countries outside of the U.K. and the U.S. You know what it's like. Um, I don't know. Do you, uh, what speed do you listen to podcasts on? Oh man, don't tell me. Are you one of these people who listen to it on like two times speed? I'm not a two times. I'm like one point five, one point six. What? Depending on the podcast. Yeah. What, Luke? Just do what no, I no, do no. and don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> but it's it's. It's fascinating to listen to because basically you, you, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of mumbling and, and umming and ahhing. And so it's not actually useful to listen to at full, at regular speed. So you listen to it slightly faster. Fine. What is most weird about it though is that if you listen to it, every other person talking, when you like move in or out of it sounds wrong. And I happened to be on a bus the other day where I was listening to a podcast on full speed, but I had like one ear open because I was waiting for like a stop or something. And then I could hear other people out in the real world talking at normal speed. And I was like, oh, you all sound absolutely crazy. And I can't quite, I couldn't move my brain between the two different speeds of sound that I was listening to. Oh, buddy. And that is exactly, that is exactly what I think is happening with the, the Instagram stuff, where you're listening to the fake version. And therefore you then suddenly can't reset to the real world while you're trying to consume both of them. And like, it's, it's the sound, the sound people speak at 
I am from the West Country. We speak very fast. So it, I can I, I can reset quite easily. But it is exactly that same sort of thing where suddenly the rest of the world feels like they're doing it wrong, even though that is genuine reality. Oh, that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. Although that is funny. I do sort of have that problem sometimes when I'm looking at too many computer generated images like in a movie and then I look outside and it looks hyper real because it doesn't look like the fake like CGI reality that I've been watching for too long on a screen. Yeah, so, I, yeah it's the same thing. I maybe think. we're both insane now. Okay, well, that's not good. Um, next up, I think we've got to talk about the whistleblower coming forward. She revealed herself on Sunday night on the American news program 60 Minutes, and her name is Frances Haugen, and... She was basically like a product designer, uh, but she is, I, I would say so far in the history of like big leakers like this, the most knowledgeable, composed, the most professional. I, I feel like we've sort of been waiting for this moment for about a decade, like a normal professional person coming forward and be like, this is fucked up. Who also has worked in a bunch of different like big Silicon Valley companies. Like she's worked at Google and stuff. Yes. So it, it, it's the fact that she's coming forward about Facebook being like, no, Facebook is weird and different. Like she also worked at Pinterest, I think. Um, yeah. And the fact that she's coming forward and saying Facebook is, is different is important. This isn't the purple haired Chris Wiley doing a bunch of Cambridge Analytica leaks and then going to build surveillance technology for H&M. Fun fact, that is what happened. <laughs> this is This is like a person who's been around Silicon Valley for a while. She knows what she's talking about, and she has stuff to compare it to. And she, you know, admitted uh, to the world this week that it was completely terrifying. And and she felt a moral responsibility to leak that stuff. And she believes that she's protected under the U.S. whistleblower laws, but we still don't know that. I, I think there's probably going to be a pretty big legal battle brewing about all of this. For sure. For sure. Um, but yeah, I think her, her testimony was was... I mean, it was extremely revealing. Um, the way that she talks, spoke about the algorithms and the fact that, uh, I mean, for a long time, we have said Facebook has the power to fix these things. Like it has the information and Facebook has gone like, we just don't know. We right. can't tell what's happening. Um, and one of the highlights I, for me was that she said, uh, cause for a very long time, Facebook has said that they basically can't detect underage users right and they go well they just put their age in us above 13 and then we, we can't do anything and she says we can group every other user we can figure out every other cohort this cohort we can figure out this cohort of young people who use it use it like under 13 year olds um we can figure that out they just don't she also doubled down on the sort of like anger engagement cycle and like what that means and yeah I think she's come the closest maybe to answering what I think is the central question about Facebook, which is, is it the chicken or is it the egg? Like, is it the thing that's causing social upheaval or is it the thing that's responding to it? And Facebook always likes to say, like, we're not radicalized. The world is radicalized. And look how many tools we have to, to think about how much worse it could be. And I yeah, think it's saying, it saying we are just reflecting the world. Exactly. Exactly. And, and not even that. We're not reflecting the world. It's so much better than it could be. Like that's sort of the argument that they've made for years. Um, and now it seems very, very clear that that is not true. And I, and I, I want to be really careful. Like I'm not going to say that Facebook is the only thing that led to the insurrection. Like that is no. that is just not possible. But I think there are a million things that could have been done by Facebook to make sure it didn't happen. And in fact, uh, 
right before we started recording today, Snopes.com uh, published a massive Twitter thread about this. And I want to read through some of what, they, what they've said here because I think it's it, – I think we're going to keep hearing more and more stuff about this. So Snopes wrote, we contacted Facebook multiple times before the January 6th Capitol riot to warn about violent rhetoric in a group with members who planned on taking matters into their own hands. Facebook failed to respond to our questions despite looming dangers. Reporting from the New York Times linked our dire warnings to acts that were carried out at the Capitol. Facebook did not appear to take any major action on the matter between Election Day and January 6th, despite the fact that the specific employees were notified. On January 16th, the New York Times reported that a man named Keith Lee spent the morning of January 6th casing the entrances to the Capitol. During the riots, he carried a bullhorn. Mr. Lee called out for the mob to rush in until his voice echoed from the dome of the rotunda. This man was linked to the very same private Facebook group that we had been contacting the company about prior to the events at the Capitol on January 6th. It was named Alamo City Trump Train. We joined the group to investigate it prior to Election Day. We found the group members had used the Facebook group to coordinate real-time movements to surround, harass, and block the Biden-Harris bus. One member said, flood the hell out of them. And, in, and the thread continues. It's terrifying. And one of the most damning things, in my opinion, of what came out from the Francis Haugen interview on Sunday was that Facebook basically celebrated the election by dismantling their civic integrity team and saying, we don't need one anymore. There were no election day riots. We're all good. Which is the exact same thing that they did when they went to the Brazil, went to Brazil and they did the, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was like the Facebook misinformation war room, whatever the fuck it was. Oh man. But like okay. A dozen people from every fucking outlet went and said, yeah, no, they figured it. There's three people in a room. I was I was there for this. Uh, I was reporting on that election in Brazil at the time, and they basically created this like completely idiotic, like bullpen newsroom thing with like tons of monitors, like looking at crowd tangle basically. But like the it was all for show. There was no the whole thing was dismantled uh, like a couple days later. Like it, they like there's no there, it's just it's just like a smokescreen. The whole thing is a smokescreen. Yeah, it is, and uh, for for non. Uh... Americans, I guess, like the, in, the 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 scale of what is happening, the scale of how WhatsApp exists outside of America is very different to how it exists inside America. Uh, outside of America, it is a basically critical infrastructure. Uh, inside America, it's kind of a third or fourth tier communications platform, uh, which actually probably le- leads us on to our next topic of conversation, which is what happens when Facebook goes down. So, fun story. Uh, right now, I'm uh, visiting my girlfriend in Brazil. Uh, so, I'm in Sao Paulo right now. And Facebook went down as I went downstairs to pick up lunch that was being delivered. And the, the, the delivery app requires a code, which is on her phone. So, I'm outside trying to WhatsApp her to have her send me the code. But WhatsApp doesn't work. And we quickly realized that, like, throughout the day, we were trying to, like, send each other stuff. Like, we're, you know, we're in the same apartment, but, you know, we're running around doing stuff. And there's just no good way to communicate without WhatsApp in Brazil. Like, it, it is it is the main... I mean, I, I will say that when you're in the same apartment, your voice often works. No, you know what I mean. Like, going outside to do stuff. <laughs> um, but, like... Yeah, no, I, I do know exactly what you mean. Like, it's one of those things where it, when it goes, you then suddenly don't have a, a backup because it's it's been there. It's always there. I had to, like, ask her if she had iMessage alerts on her phone. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know. If I didn't use iMessage, I would turn those off. Like, why would you keep them on? Um, but how was it in the UK when WhatsApp went down? Um, I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty weird. Uh, 
like it's fine. I didn't. It was like a Tuesday night. Was it Tuesday night, Monday night? I can't remember which night it was. But it was basically fine on the basis that uh, it must have been Monday night. Uh, it was basically fine on the basis that I didn't have anything to do that day, so therefore was not actually messaging many people on WhatsApp and just switched to text messages, which is very retro. I sent a text message to my girlfriend that, uh, and it's not the last one I sent. It was in 2019, <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of wild. Um, but yeah, it, it is a, it is a much bigger thing outside the US. And as a result, like it is extremely, like there, there are chunks of just infrastructure that falls apart where it's like, Oh, actually we have weirdly been relying on WhatsApp to do this bit of like hospital administration or this group that we, we maintain. Like, uh, one of the things about, for example, most newsrooms use Slack now uh, as a as a communications tool. Slack on mobile is still not great, whereas WhatsApp on mobile is still brilliant. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of news organizations who, with people out in the field, are still using uh, WhatsApp groups because that just makes sense. And there's an awful lot of other organizations that use WhatsApp groups for coordination of communication. Um, and then not having that causes the huge short-term problems. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I... I cannot think of a single person who needs Facebook proper at the moment. Like I, I know that they exist. I know that like there are small towns that are running their like like town halls through it. I know that there are police departments that use it for messaging. Like I know that it has become in a lot of parts of places in America and the UK, especially like local infrastructure. It sort of replaced what websites used to be. That small said, businesses particularly. Small like, businesses. It seems, be, it seems to be a big for them. I don't. I don't see people wanting to use it, but I see it sort of now as like a modern version of the phone book. WhatsApp and Instagram, however, are totally different stories where like I know so many internet culture reporters that were like, I straight up can't do my job right now because I don't have Instagram. You know, if you're covering influencers, if you're talking to anyone under the age of 30, Instagram DMs are how that's happening. And then with WhatsApp, you basically just have whole countries running on it, like India, Brazil, the UK. Yeah. Like most of the global South is using WhatsApp. So I, sus I suspect that's why Tory conference wasn't very dramatic because for a key part of it, WhatsApp was down. That is a, that is an excellent point that, uh, Tories without the ability to, uh, you know, cre create like just absolutely horrific amounts of like beige violence via WhatsApp <laughs> were on their best behavior. But like it, it is, it is interesting how. Facebook is extremely important to the way the world operates. And yet Facebook itself, the main app, is the kind of the least important part of the equation. And I wanted to I wanted to send you over this incredible Twitter thread from a, a podcast called Minion Death Cult. And so oh, what a name. I know. I I, I think we gotta ask them if we can if we can have that name because it's so much better than the content minds. Um yep. so they they posted a thread where they wrote, for everyone hurting right now, a thread of Facebook content. And the posts in here are just unbelievable. There's there's one uh, with a guy who's like a hardcore guy with like big gauged ears. And he's saying, I've been waiting f years for my hashtag pro-life goth under like a photo <laughs> of like a goth girl who says she's pro-life. There's another one of like a dead dude in a casket, but the casket lid is up and the inside of the lid is just covered in Trump posters. Like Facebook is somehow just like this like dark void of like the American zeitgeist. And it's like the underbelly of the country. It's, it's insane. It, and yet like people are using it every day. Like mil millions of people are using it every day to, to post this shit. I mean, I think we are in a very weird period of this. I always think this because I always, I, I basically, on this, on, I've read it on a, a cycle of about 10 days. I go from believing that Facebook is, uh, 
an unimaginable horror that must be destroyed for the future of humanity and believing that facebook is just basically like books but more like right. it's the printing press but more and like those are kind of the my two my two extremes that i swing between uh and what i do think is that we will get to a point where you know i think if you're a 20 year old now you are much smarter about how you use social media and you know that there are things you don't put in different places you understand that uh you're, you're you intuitively understand your kind of privacy circles where you're like this is my small group this is my big group and i know they know what they're doing in a way that old people don't and older people instead are just like i can just type anything i want into facebook and i feel like i'm saying it to no one but simultaneously i'm saying it to a lot of people and i do think that that is behavior that will be learned out and like replaced with like more sophisticated versions of what we're seeing like you're still going to have like far-right extremism and racism and like bad jokes and like misogyny and pyramid schemes and all the rest of it and like goths goths seem to love facebook um but they're just going to be savvier about it i think Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Why do goths love Facebook so much? Um, I mean, they hate the sun, so they can't go outside. See, I think that's that's an interesting point. My my guess would be that being a goth is like as much of a hobby as it is sort of like an identity. So like, it's a very like easy fit for like a Facebook group where it's like, I bought these spiked platform shoes, and I bought this choker, and like I'm a vampire. Um. Okay, so I feel like we need to talk about Andy Stone now. Yeah, we probably do. So, have you... What a, what a dickhead. <laughs> so wait, sorry, your... like, I can go a lot of different ways on this guy, but uh, what a dickhead. In your journalism experience, like in your journalistic sort of career trajectory have you ever dealt with this guy at all um i don't not directly i don't think i have i think it might have been i think it might have been cc'd on some emails i have i have i have run into him i have dealt with him i've had even like i think public twitter spats with him before like i've also been yelled at by editors for like basically like yelling at him because i think he's a i think he's been dickhead for a long time but yeah to protect us and our reputations and the amount of skin that we have in the game i would like to defer to an excellent piece by Chris Stokel Walker, the absolute just internet culture journalism powerhouse, the the Babe Ruth of internet journalism at the moment. <laughs> uh, he wrote a story this week titled "We Need to Talk About That Facebook PR Guy Andy Stone for Input Mag," and it is just the most epic dressing down of Andy Stone, who is just he he he's either like crazy or he like like I just want, I want to sit with him and be like. What do you think you're doing? Like, what do you think you're accomplishing by being a, an absolutely unrepentant dick on Twitter nonstop? Like, what do you think you're accomplishing? What do you think you're doing, man? Also, also should point out, should be pointed out, a millennial Democrat. Oh, like he's worked. He's worked for like three different Democrats and the, the Democratic House Committee or whatever it is. Like, he is properly integrated into the Democratic establishment. So. My most favorite, like, recent interaction of Andy Stone's, and I feel like this is, like, what got him on everyone's radar for being, like, an absolute dick, 
is uh, Cecilia Kang, the, an excellent reporter for the New York Times. She covers technology. Uh, she tweeted about the, the, the Facebook kids presentation and how absolutely ghoulish it was. Uh, she said that uh, the fact that they were trying to leverage play dates to get kids hooked on Facebook was speechless. It made her speechless. And then Andy Stone took a screenshot of the kids section of the New York Times and tweeted it at her being like, speaking of tweens, the valuable and untapped audience, dot, dot, dot. Also note the cartoon cell phone. And then thousands of people replied to his tweet being like, what What the hell are you talking about? What do you think you're doing? And also, if you think Facebook's a newspaper, well, then we have a whole different conversation. When you <laughs> would, you, would you argue that Facebook's a publisher? Because if so, let's do this. Yeah, I would love do – you, do you think that you're a publisher? Do you think that you no longer need Section 230? Is that what's happening right now? Because if so, <laughs> we should have a we, we could be having a much more fun conversation. But here's the weird thing about Andy Stone and the fact that he is like a you know Democrat operative that's now like harassing journalists on Twitter for Zuckerberg's like clout is that his Twitter behavior is actually the most reminiscent to like the Wolf Warrior Twitter accounts from China. Yeah, I can see that. I he has he has a, a very he he has a, a very fascinating tone on Twitter, which is kind of like almost he's almost doing like brand banter. Like yeah. he's kind of like trying to be weirdly lighthearted about stuff in a way that he's like, and he's obviously Frances uh, Horn just, when she starts her testimony, she says, uh, I'm not an expert in this. I did not work in this specific department. I worked in the uh, overall civic, uh, civic engagement, civic, civic risk, whatever it's called department. Uh, and then he's like five, 10 minutes later during her thing, he's tweeting like, huh, just so you know, she didn't work with any of this stuff. And it's like, yeah, man, we, we know she said this. Like, what are, what are you doing here? You're doing this for clout? Like, your your Facebook man, like you're trying to earn your own fake money. You're on Twitter. You're trying to earn Twitter's fake currency of likes. Basically, congratulations. All of his tweets read like he's like staring at like a you mad rage comic and being like, <laughs> you uh, you have been epically trolled again, journalists. Like that's what he like. It's just like a, such a smug, like insane way to deal with it. And it's like it would be like if you tweeted at the Wendy's account about them causing a genocide and they were like oh what's the matter can't handle our square burgers and it's like yeah it's like, like read the no, room we, we have some thoughts man yeah all right so just out of um just out of sort of like fair play here i want to read the statement the actual statement that facebook put out about the francis haugen uh hearing so um joe osborne a guy who seems less of a dick then Andy Stone tweeted, Today, a Senate Commerce subcommittee held a hearing with a former product manager at Facebook who worked for the company for less than two years, had no direct reports, never attended a decision point meeting with C-level executives, and testified more than six times to not working on the subject matter in question. We don't agree with her characterization of the many issues she testified about. Despite all of this, we agree on one thing. It's time to begin to create standard rules for the Internet. It's been 25 years since the rules for the Internet have been updated and Instead of expecting the industry to make societal decisions that be that belong to the legislators, it's time for Congress to act. And then my favorite thing is the top response is from Jane Manchun Wong. She's like an incredible like programmer, white hat hacker kind of like person. And she responded with, why would you post a screenshot without alt text instead of a web link to the statement? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then Zuckerberg <laughs> did like a lengthy response too, where he did my favorite, like absolutely hollow, insane, like tech founder thing where he's like, I want to share a statement that I sent out to my employees. 
which is just like so manipulative and dumb. And then he said the same thing, which is just like, we don't agree with anything that happened, but at the same time, let's work to fix it. Like, it's just so dumb. I, I do worry that Facebook has kind of arrived at a point where they have determined, and this certainly is backed up by some of the reporting that, uh, well, a few different people have done, um, but they uh, Facebook arrived at a point where they no longer think that there is any value in them engaging like like that they have attempted to they they think that they have engaged enough and they've gone back and forth and done their bits and pieces of uh oh well we'll try and make this better and try and make this better and instead they're now just sort of going shrugging and saying all right let's see what happens i think you're right i think this is very much like a uh, oh there is a more abuse in the catholic church situation and like there are no mecha- i mean the we're running out of mechanisms to to deal with them because they're so large now that like like, I mean, look, like, let's go super extreme, right? Like, America could just straight up ban Facebook as a company, but Facebook has users around the world, so they could just relocate their company to, like, some country that, want, that like, is happy. Like, they could just relocate to Hungary, you know? Well, the, the, the theory is they're breaking them up. Like, that's probably the closest that it would actually come to meaningfully changing them, in that they would not then be capturing people in so many different ways. But even then, I'm not totally sure that would work. Um yeah, I don't know. I think if Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook became three separate companies again, like I do think that would be something. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I, I it's gotten to a point where now I think about it and I feel so daunted by the idea of like how you would break them up in a way because I feel like up until this week really there was sort of the assumption that like yeah, they're evil and like they're bad for the world, but they're not like actively malicious. They just like do bad things and bad things happen. But I feel like the last week has colored my perception in a way where I'm like, oh no, they're actively like if we tried to break them up, they would just try to figure out a way to not be broken up. A week ago, I thought they were 30% evil, 70% incompetent. Yes. Uh, and now I'm the other way around. I agree. I'm exactly the same. Yeah. I, I, now I'm like, oh, like if we made them not own Instagram, they would just find a way to own Instagram again. Yeah. And now or I they, think that, yeah, they would just never give up. Or they would turn Instagram into Facebook, you know, like, like whatever we allow them to own, they'll just grow like a, vi- like a virus. They'll just grow it until the size that they once were. Yeah. It's not good. No. I think my final thought would be that the testimony that we've had is the clearest example of the fact that Facebook have been economical with the truth when they've been answering questions and coming back to us and and explaining things um or or trying to defend things and facebook like many companies is kind of i don't say given the benefit of the doubt because that's not quite what i mean but you know you you take what they say at face value and i think that there is a point coming when that just has to stop being the case for for basic things not just kind of the big stories when we know that they're they're struggling but like for the basic things facebook is not even close to attempting to do what they say they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I want to end with something that I think can help us remember the magic of Facebook. You know, we've been so negative that I feel like it's important to really point out what Facebook can accomplish by connecting the world, okay? So I have two posts. They're both from the same Facebook group. The Facebook group is called Urine Magic. Okay. The first first post reads, Guys, I have been unemployed since 2019. This week, I bathed with morning urine mixed with milk. On the third day, I got a call from an agency that I have been shortlisted and I need to go for the interview the following day. I don't know why the bit that makes me feel gross about that is the mixing. It's the milk. I think it's the milk that makes you upset there. So then there's another post from Urine Magic, and it reads, I drink urine in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) 
I drink I drink urine in the morning. After 30 minutes, my eyes start itching and become red. Until now, I'm in pain. Help. And then the response <laughs> it, the response is, you have a serious eye problem. You n- <laughs> you have a serious eye problem. You need to continue taking your pee always to treat the ailment. Good. That's smart. Whatever whatever is happening, just keep doing the same things that you're doing. You know what my favorite Facebook thing ever was? Uh, It was back in like 2014 when Facebook was trying to make tags much more active. Uh, One of the things they turned on was uh, basically when people typed grandma, it also filled it to grandmaster flash. And oh, tagged yeah. Grandmaster Flash into it. I forgot about that. The whole thing was like everyone just kept tagging Grandmaster Flash over and over again. Yeah, exactly. It was it was amazing uh, because yeah, everyone would just be like, many grandmas would do it where they would just say uh, things like, "Hey, um, happy birthday! Uh, hope you're having a great day. Love Grandmaster Flash." Uh, and it's just, it's great. It's one of my favorite things. I feel like this is what Facebook needs to emphasize to the world to get their reputation back, which is that, like, they're not just an infinitely scalable human manipulation machine. They're also a place to tag Grandmaster Flash and talk about <laughs> drinking your own urine. Yes. Have you consumed any content to stay sane this week? Uh, yeah, I have content. I have content this week. Um, uh, Seinfeld has arrived on Netflix. Or it's arrived yes. on Netflix in the UK. I don't know if it's arrived on your Netflix. Yeah, no, it's 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 worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I haven't not watched Seinfeld properly ever. Maybe I've watched like the occasional episode. Uh, but I've, yeah, I happen to have had some bit of time. I watched a few episodes this week. Um, and my conclusion is that Seinfeld's it's okay. The biggest, most confusing thing about British American relations, in my opinion, is that Seinfeld was not big there and Friends was massive. Because when you think about the British sensibility, you don't think Friends. You think Seinfeld. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, Seinfeld is a, is a, is a, like the UK is a country of a Seinfeld episode. And at, at any given moment, there's a Seinfeld episode happening in the UK as far as Peep Show, Peep Show borrows a lot from Seinfeld. It does. It does. But so, so what are your, what are your thoughts about Seinfeld watching it now? Um, my thoughts are that it um, it's astonishing how New York all their accents are. Without trying to be. Without trying to be. They are incredibly, aggressively New York, which I think actually may have been one of the things that kind of like added to distance to it because there was a cultural, there's a cultural vibe to it. And also I start from getting to watching more early episodes. There's a cultural vibe to it that I can really understand British people not getting 30 years ago. Like we didn't yeah. have that same kind of New York, understanding of what New York was, um, which I think, yeah, I think that's a big, a big part of it. Uh, and it, I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because it's surprisingly tightly plotted. Like it has clear, oh, that's not true. It's, it's basically an extremely cleverly pos- plotted sketch show that is for some reason spun out to 20 minutes. Yes. Like you could, you could compress a Seinfeld episode into a four minute sketch. 
But the but the genius is that it's not compressed. Yes. Like one of my favorite episodes is the Chinese food restaurant episode where they get a reservation for a Chinese food restaurant. And then when they get there, they discover that they did not remember to keep the reservation. So the whole episode is them waiting to finally get a table for the Chinese food restaurant. And it takes 22 minutes and it is agonizing. It is the it is about the agony of waiting for a table that you thought you had reserved. But in fact, they did not hold the reservation. So, OK, I should I should probably say at the height of my Seinfeld consumption, I was living in Queens and they would play it from 7 to 8 p.m. at night. So I'd watch an hour of Seinfeld. Then they would play it on a different channel from 8 to like 9. So I'd watch like another hour of Seinfeld. And then they would play it on a third channel from like 11 to 1. So I'd watch like two more hours. Like I was watching like four hours of Seinfeld a day. I can quote whole episodes from memory. It is a, a tremendous show. Uh, and I, I'm excited that you're finally uh, experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it, it's a good show. It is It is also one of those things where I've mentioned this thing before, but there's it's a certain amount of looking at it and being like, wow, I can now only see this through the prism of the Twitter like parodies of it. Oh yeah, where, that's true. Where like you see someone say, you have someone say a line, and I'm like, oh, I know the next six lines because I know exactly how this goes, and you do know the next six lines, and then the six lines you expect. Yeah, but yeah, it's fun. See, you can you can you can take the reservation, but you can't keep the reservation, and that's really what the reservation's about. It's <laughs> not just taking the reservation; it's holding the reservation. Um, I watch some good content. What's your content? Shin Godzilla. Ooh. Do you know about this movie? No, wait, have you watched Shang-Chi yet? No, I haven't. Okay, correct. It's coming out next month. I'll watch it on Disney+. Plus. I just I just don't have time in my life to go to a movie theater. So Shin Godzilla is fascinating. It was directed by the guy who did the uh, critically acclaimed and completely insane anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. And it's his version of a Godzilla film. And it's basically a giant metaphor for the Fukushima reactor disaster. But instead of a reactor disaster, it's Godzilla. And it's... It would be basically like a dark comedy of like, what if Veep had to deal with Godzilla? So it's like a bureaucratic, like fast talking West Wing style movie where there's just like a giant lizard outside and they're like trying not to acknowledge the giant lizard. Right. Okay. I mean, that does sound fun. It is very fun. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you can find it, it's kind of hard to find it online, but it's worth watching. Um, it's, I would say it's the best Godzilla movie I've ever seen. And I really like Godzilla. So, you know, that's saying something. That's interesting. Man, maybe we should watch a load of Godzilla movies. Actually, no, there's like 500 of them. There's, I think there's 37. We could watch the Monsterverse movies, which are actually pretty good. I enjoy them. Um, but yeah, you know, probably not. I probably don't. Yeah, want I don't to do want to, I don't want to do that. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the content minds. Uh, thank you. In advance for coming to see us live in London, if that happens <laughs> for you, please just come, please come, please come. Uh, and, you know, I think the real final line that I want to repeat for everybody is you need to continue taking your pee always. Yes, so. that, that is that is that is what will protect you from Facebook. So you need to continue. <laughs> yeah, you can protect yourself from the effects of Facebook by drinking your own pee. Um, so, and that is what we, that is what we will be doing at the live show. <laughs> you know what? If, if we, if we hit capacity, uh, I will definitely think about drinking my own pee on stage. Sure. I mean, we actually do already have a thing we were supposed to do, which is we, we have to drink a full bottle of, we have to chug a bottle of Modelo. Oh, we have to do the Modelo challenge on stage. I yeah, forgot about this. Yeah, we have this. to do the Modelo challenge on stage. Okay. Then we can, like, we can, abs- that, that will absolutely happen. Uh, if yeah. you come to the show, you will see me and Luke attempt to do the Modelo challenge. Um, and 
I've never done. I've never ended a show like this before, but I think I'm going to start ending the show like this because we probably should do this. Go on like your podcast app of choice and like leave us a review or a comment if you like the show. I I tried to do this like a year and a half ago and you laughed at me. I know, but like you know, we've been you know we've been doing this for a year. We might as well like go full in, right? Like we might as well like yeah. treat this like a thing. So head over to Apple, iTunes, or whatever the the. the <laughs> <laughs> Head so over to your preferred po- podcast app and leave us a review or rating. I'm, uh, I'm so bad at this. Yeah, go over to the app that algorithmically suggests our podcast to other podcast listeners and like give us a good review there and like leave us a nice comment. And actually, no, go to our iTunes page and I need you to leave the one comment over and over. And that comment is remember to keep taking your pee always. So if you can, well, that'll, you can that'll, leave- get, that'll get banned as spam. What we have to do is we have – the content strategy has to be that we need to make people always leave a slightly different thing. So, like, we ask them a question, like, what person would you like us to fight or whatever it would be? So, right now, all of you go talk about drinking your own pee in our comment section, and then next week we'll give you a new challenge to to leave in the comments. Yes. So leave leave your best tips for drinking your own pee, and then we'll start start there. Okay. I'm going to go now. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great week. Goodbye. Bye-bye.